This is episode eight of Dilemma. I am here as always with Coleman Hughes. Great to be here. This episode is called FriendBot, and um, it's it's a really, really interesting case based on a real event or real thing that someone did that I learned about in an article in The Verge. Um, so here's what she did. So here's the situation I'm talking about this week. I can't pronounce the names that well. Um, and again, this is taken from an article from The Verge, and I recommend reading it. We'll put a link uh, in the description. Kudya and Roman grew up as best friends together in Russia. Roman was an outgoing, fun-loving guy with big dreams. Kudya was fascinated with AI and ended up moving to Silicon Valley to research chatbot technology. Roman and Kudya continued their friendship often through texts and social media groups and postings. Tragically, one day Roman was struck by a car and died instantly. This news hit Kudya hard. In her grief, she collected all the text messages that Roman had with her and solicited willing friends and family members to share their chat histories with Roman as well. She used all of this data in a neural network machine learning algorithm which she was developing in order to produce a chatbot which could be interacted with in Roman's style. Some friends and family were appreciative of having this digital version of Roman and some were creeped out. This Roman app is crude and clunky, but available for anyone to interact with and apparently quite convincing for people who knew the real Roman. So it exists for the public. It exists for the public now. I think when she did it at first, this was just for her. But yeah, it exists for the public. Hmm. Um, but that's that's what she did. So this episode, I want to warn the listeners, this episode I think is going to be probably pretty serious. We're going to be talking about things like like crazy things like resurrection and immortality. Oh, sorry, why is that crazy? And death. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's totally normal. Um and it's it's heavy and grief and 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 in a lot of ways the featured guest who I'll introduce after we bat this around um and I end up talking a lot in the psychology realm about grief and because there's philosophical questions all over this that we get into but there's also sort of the central question of the psychological like is this wise for her to do so mm. i just want to warn the listeners like we break into all of that stuff but upon first hearing it friend bot like i don't know what's sounds straight out of black mirror yes in fact there was an episode of black mirror where they went further and made a sort of real human recreation of the person that was indistinguishable in many ways except had to learn the personal history of their you know relationships and also it didn't sleep which yeah. was a minor bug but <laughs> a really creepy minor bug that episode's called be right back it's actually they reference it in that verge article okay um yeah and it seems the moral takeaway of that or psychological lesson of that episode was was kind of I don't know how you feel about it, but maybe this is unwise to do because it ends with to ruin. Should we spoil the episode for people who haven't seen it or no? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it ends with that. She sort of realizes that she's stuck in this kind of loop of grief with this. I think it was her fiance who was uh -huh. dead, but now uh -huh. there's this like near perfect replication of him Yeah. and she needs to get rid of it to move on with her life, but she can't bring herself to like kill it or throw it off a cliff because yeah. it looks just like him and sounds like him. And so it ends up like in her attic as this like weird, creepy 
thing that she keeps alive in the attic. Great episode. Be right back. First season. Mm. Uh, go watch it on Netflix after you listen to our, our take on it all. Now that I just ruined it for you, but it's okay. Yeah. Well, my initial take is I wonder how satisfying it was to her. Yeah. From her perspective, did she really feel like Roman was back? Did she feel the way she felt around him? How realistic was the texting? Did it replicate his style well? Yeah. And did the did the knowledge that he was in fact dead ever ruin it for her? Those are my questions. I don't know. We'll jump into it because the guest is Rebecca Goldstein, who is amazing. Um, I, I think she introduces herself or, or identifies herself as a philosopher of science. It's also an incredible author and has written some books in the fiction and nonfiction world. I think most recently was Plato at the Googleplex. And I, I should also say, you know, this episode in particular, like tackles some of these really base existential questions of like, what is death? Do we have to die? Can we overcome death? Um, it, it, these are questions that I guess since since time immemorial, people or humans, however you define that, have been wondering about and asking about. And what's crazy is that it seem, seems as so often is the case that technology has sort of hoisted them now upon us where they've always been these kind of just super theoretical, you know, mind in the clouds kind of conversations to have in a freshman dorm room now they actually seem like they're like on our laps. And so trying to wade our way through that minefield is, uh, is this conversation. So here's Rebecca. Yeah. Where do you start poking around? I don't even want to say the moral questions involved here, but let's start poking around it. Yeah. Maybe some of the philosophical and identity questions that surfaced. You know, my, my first thought is, is, well, there are two kinds of questions that arise. Is it good for the mourners? And are, are we, I mean, obviously a person who's dead is dead and you can't really harm them. But are, are you somehow not doing justice mm-hmm. to, to, to who they were? Um, and, uh, and which is a more philosophical question because right. you are then, well, what is it that, that a person is? But I mean, the first question, the first thing I, I thought of was um, I could see, I could see getting really caught in this, you know, because the missing of someone, I mean, it's just so intense. Yeah. There's this process that I've experienced, which is, you know, of, of uh, constantly sort of talking to them. I, well, I lost my father, and who was the person I, um, you know, I, I did then and continue, you know, to admire the most in, in the world. He um, is somebody I would describe as having had perfect moral pitch. Mm-hmm. He also had perfect musical pitch. He was a cantor and he had perfect musical pitch, but he had perfect moral pitch. And so, you know, all of the truly moral dilemmas that I had, I could go to somebody mm-hmm. who would get right to the heart of it, right? Right. Ask exactly, you know, the right question, um, question that clarified. And so I think Still, throughout my life, and I lost him. He, he died quite young, and still, um, you know, and I'm older than he is now. But I still, you know, there's I. What would my father say? Yeah. <laughs> and um, and so you kind of internalize that person, um, as they were, but you know they're gone, and there isn't the illusion. So I was thinking when I read this, what more is being gained by this? Um, by by not keeping active this activity that you go through, but kind of passively consulting the spot right. as if it was that person. And, and 
Um, and it seemed to me that what was the more was the illusion that the person was still here. And insofar as what's added with that more, it's an illusion um, that I don't like illusions in general. <laughs> I'm a real reality chauvinist. I, I really <laughs> believe in trying to confront reality yeah. and adjust ourselves to it. If, if there is a moral question, maybe to start laying on the table, it is, I guess I could flip this in this case, the young man who was struck by a car suddenly, Yeah, uh, his name was Roman. Yeah. Um, if there's a moral, you, you were sort of hinting at it, is there an ownership to what was, well, we have to also talk about sort of what was taken here, which I guess in this case was sort of like his pattern of texting and interacting digitally with people, which is becoming more ubiquitous, yes. the place where our friendships actually live. Uh, uh, was this was this a kind of encroachment on his autonomy of a of a person? Because you were saying like maybe we're harming the dead. Is there actually is this a bit of just like a violation of privacy <laughs> of some sort? You know, everything that they're using there was public. Right. I mean, well, actually, was it? It really, you know, it was she, through friends. Yeah, like she was, solicited text messages from like even the, some fa like family members gave them. And then we're also, they seemed to react a little weirdly when they saw the final product. Maybe yeah. like this yeah. was maybe a mistake. Yeah. But some were yeah. really, you know, generous. Of, but yeah, she didn't steal anything from anybody. She this didn't steal true. anything. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I guess in principle, you know, everything, you know, it's kind of all out there. Mm -hmm. But she did, you know, I mean, we do we do tweet differently, mm -hmm. you know, as we speak differently to different people and we have secrets from you know that that also is true, you yeah. know, that we we have secrets from from various people and um so there is there is that there is that uh everything is being revealed. Well, but not everything. The, yeah. the something is being left out, which is the person them themselves mm -hmm. you know I, I i i would be very interested um first of all i i see this taking off big time um because i think everything that feeds our our, our illusions takes off and and the thing we most want to have an illusion about is immortality um, you know, both for ourselves and, and for the ones we've lost. It's, it's a huge one. It's fed religion <laughs> since time immemorial. And, and now, you know, we can have another way of feeding it. So I see it taking off in a big way. And I, one, one question I think that would be very interesting would be is if people, you know, themselves put it in their will. You know, do I want this or don't I want this? Um, you know, that I think it should be up there were all sorts of things that we. No, I don't. I wonder whether legally that because I was going to say there are all sorts of things we put in our will, but there are a lot of things you can put in your will, you know, that won't be recognized. And I don't know whether, but it does seem to me that a, the person themselves ought to have some control yeah. over this. Can we just dig into the psychological notion of identity in this yeah. case? Because I, I was thinking of um, when my mother lost her parents, uh, so my grandmother. Um, a little active on Facebook. She used it enough in her older age. And I, you know, I don't even know if they still happen. I don't use Facebook much anymore, but there's these like auto posts where it posts on your behalf. If you're like playing a game or if you like a product or like a sports team or something. And so it would every now and then pop up on the newsfeed of like my grandmother and her profile being like, liked a thing or whatever. And it, 
you know, it was an advertisement basically, but there was a creepiness factor of like, that's, it's her interacting with me in the, or it looks like it in this really kind of awful way um, that felt, I don't know, just. Invasive of of her or. Yeah. Invasive of her. And then also maybe invasive of my process and my mom's grieving process. Remember she would tell me that she, yeah. But, and your mom was put off by it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like, you know what it is, but it still is this like, I don't know, punch to the gut or something. Yeah, it's, um, I can, yeah, I haven't experienced any of this myself, but I can see that it's, it, it's sort of, there's a natural, there is a natural grieving process. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we really have to um, reconcile ourselves to is that we are animals. I mean, we have every way of getting around the fact that we're animals, and animals die, <laughs> you know. And we have had just, as I say, you know, from re- religion and all sorts of things onward, I mostly, I mean, a lot of religion, you know, just denying this fact that we are glorified animals. We are the apes with the very big brains, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and or, you know, we're the animals who know we're going to die. And there are so many illusions come from this. And, um, and, and there are so many ways of hiding from this illusion. And I don't think it's healthy. So the psychological thing itself, I just, I think we're better off not encouraging the illusions of immortality. Yeah. And then with the identity question, maybe like with Roman, when, uh, when her, his friend, makes this bot in in her image or in his image meaning um you know she used like a machine learning neural network process to just study his behavior in the digital conversation domain and then generate new responses that were in the same style like I, i guess i'm with the identity what was she taking there is it possible to actually do that is that a part of your identity is your um (laughs) your interaction with others it's almost like there's a consciousness question happening here of my first person qualia yes experience yes can't be replicated to you right but my but my passing of the turing test if i were a robot that's right is totally replicatable absolutely yes of course it is yeah yeah and so you know, part of, I mean, we're very complicated creatures and what our identity actually consists in is a, is, is a, one of those real, it's a very baffling mm-hmm. question. Um, so, you know, it's clearly not that person because the consciousness is not there. I mean, a person is a consciousness um, and it's, you know, it's a continuity of consciousness um, you know, linked together by 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 causality, but this is not the person. The person is gone. You know, the con- the body is not there. The consciousness is not there. There is not an experience or uh, generating these things. So, you know, whichever criteria we use, this person is not there, mm-hmm. and this is an illusion. Yeah, this is an illusion that. There's a similarity. I mean, when I talk to my father, it's because I had, you know, a deep knowledge of his responses. But he's, you know, he's gone. There's not, he's not generating those right. responses. It's but you not imagine a response. I hear, you know, I can hear him still in my right. voice. I've, I've cultivated this throughout all these years so I can hear his 
sweet voice giving his sweet answers, you know. But, I mean, I've probably strayed so far from anything that, that he would have thought by this point. Who knows? Oh, um, from him. From him, sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know. I was thinking of this, like, um, this notion of, of identity with Roman and a friend. Again, like, so much of our friendships these days, at least in my generation, in slightly generation. younger, this yes, year, yes. takes place, like, mutually on a phone or in a digital domain. So yes. I, I was talking about my best friend in college. His name is Doug. I haven't seen him in, you know, we see each other every few years if we happen to be in the same city, but he lives in Texas. Yeah. Almost all of our communication is on the phone. Yeah. If he, if he died and nobody told me, yeah. but there was a bot created yeah. sort of in his image and continued to converse with me, I, yeah. I bet it could pass the sort of Doug Turing test for me in that level. Um, yes. If I don't know it's an illusion and, I, and maybe I never find out, is this... Is this a problem? Like from the view from nowhere, it's an illusion. But from my view, That's Doug right. is very much alive. And if the software is good enough, I'll never see behind the curtain. You know, it's sort of like, um, it's the question of um, if people are talking uh, malicious gossip about you and you never know, mm -hmm. um, are you suffering any harm? I think you are. I think you are suffering harm, and I, I don't. I don't think just the internal criterion of do I know and does it impact on my experience is the only way to to suffer harm. Um, you know, my, and I think if you lived on in this, there's something to be gained, as difficult as it is, in coming to terms with losing dear ones, mm. you know, and facing one's own mortality. Um, but, you know, I think, I actually think it's much easier to face one. I, I'm sure this differs, and it would be interesting to have some empirical data mm. on this. But for me, it's, I could face my own mortality much more, I'll be gone, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> in the end, you know. But losing, losing people, you know, who really constituted your world to a great extent, is such a diminishment of your world. It hurts. It hurts mm. greatly. And you learn coping techniques and you learn ways around it and you come to terms with it. And it's called maturity. Um, and, and, you know, and it's called struggling toward wisdom. And I think this, this, this issue in particular is such an important part of, uh, of wisdom, of struggling towards wisdom and knowing that we are not control of everything, right? I mean, this is, this is again, trying to usurp autonomy, um, you know, controlling one of the hardest things that we, about the universe, it snatches away, just extinguishes them as if, you know, they hadn't been at all. People who meant the world to us, that is so, and it's somehow, no, 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 we're, we're going to, you know, through our technology or through our wishful thinking, you know, it, it's very much like religion. Anything that gets too close to the illusions of religion mm -hmm. is for me a warning sign that we're not, no, this is no deal. You know, Kant said that what the, in the enlightenment is, is um, intellectual maturity. Mm. I don't, you know, any steps away from that seem wrong to me. So... Okay, I'm not sure morally wrong, but yeah. psychologically, psychologically wrong. wrong. I guess like there's, we'll just have to go into it because like... Or maybe morally wrong. So this question of is immortality 
immoral is the is a yeah that's on the table I guess is immortality is the you know is is thinking, what would constitute immortality maybe needs to be answered and then exactly yeah. you know I mean so immortality so there's the fact of immortality would be the continuity of our personal identity after our physical death, which I do believe, since we are our brains, to be an impossibility. You know, I think that this is impossible. Um, And so belief in immortality um, would be a false belief. Well, we have many false beliefs. I don't know if it's immoral. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of fear that generates uh, belief in immortality. Um, I guess maybe another way to question it or ask it is, do we, if we, is it human to die? Is that like a necessary ingredient to being human is to being mortal? Because yes. what's also lingering around this is the old famous ship of thesis um, uh, thought experiment of replacing every plank of wood on a ship that leaves it. England right. and by the time it gets to America. So if, so if I can right. replace your, if, if we are our brains or we're the emergent property of whatever yes, magic's happening right. in our brains, if I can replace them one by one yes. with silicon. If you could, yes, you could upload me. You could upload, upload you yes, absolutely. in a way that your consciousness never gets lost and you feel continuity the whole time. And That's then, right. That would be a kind of immortality. Yeah. Yes. But and, we're not talking about that. So you're okay. right. If we get to that, yeah. we... There, we could live on. But we would um, no longer be human. Well, that's right. There's nothing special about this hardware. Right. It's all the software. <laughs> and it, it can be, it can be uh, silicon. It doesn't have to be uh, organic. Right. That's for sure. Yeah. So, yes. Um, but at this stage of the game, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we can't do that. Yeah. And I don't, I, don't see, I don't see any problem with that. I guess people, again, could choose whether they want this or not. I actually think that there is a, there's something greedy about, I mean, that would be okay, because at least we wouldn't be taking, if we were uploaded, you know, onto computers, we wouldn't be using up the resources of the planet. Um, you know, for, for the most part, I think it's, you know, I don't want this physical body to live on longer than is natural. It's time for uh, the next generation. Again, I think it's this maturity and it's a kind of perspective. So it's it's interesting because I I do think that gaining progress ethically has so much to do with seeing yourself in perspective, right? I mean, you know, the the big enemy of of, uh, behaving morally is that you are, people are so sunk into their, you know, to their own self-importance and all of this. And, you know, it's it's all, you know, to see yourself as one among many and the reality of others. And you're no more important than all these people who came before you and all the people who are going to come after you. I mean, that is, that kind of perspective seems to me part of becoming a moral person, just seeing yourself as, you know, you know kind of being grateful that you got the chance for existence. Think of all those who never the chance for our existence, right? And, you know, we're one of the lucky ones. We do. I don't think, it seems to me, you know, I don't want to say that people who are, you know, it's most of my family, I come from a very religious family and they believe very deeply in, you know, the survival of the soul and, you know, uh, paradise and all this and earning your rewards and I 
love them and respect them and don't want to say that they're, I mean, it's all tied up with other beliefs of theirs, which I consider false. But, um, you know, I do think that uh, gaining, uh, you know, just to some extent, I think, uh, you know, the belief in God is, again, just a way of uh, making ourselves too important in the world. Um, that, you know, that took a special creation to create this. No, we're animals, you know, that through the processes of evolution, we came to have these big brains and to ask these questions and, and to struggle with ethics. Well, <laughs> the real ethical struggle is to see yourself in perspective. Yeah, so I kind of do think, yes, in some way. You got there, that it's... Yeah. I think the, the sentence that I asked that, I don't even know what it means, but is immortality... Immoral is like yeah. my favorite sentence that I've, I've had a question that I formed. It was also my favorite question that you formed because <laughs> I was thinking it right before you said it. And I think her answer was unsatisfactory to me. She said something along the lines of, you know, I, I think when it's naturally my time to go, I, you know, I'll want to go. I don't want to exceed what is natural, mm-hmm. which I think is an example of the naturalistic fallacy. Namely, if something is natural, therefore yeah. it's good. That's a fallacy I'm sure she would recognize in any other context. It's a, it's a you know, people always make that mistake. You know, yeah. cancer is natural, malaria is natural. These things aren't good. Uh, you know, penicillin is is man. I guess man made. It's a fungus, so but it's natural. Yeah. Well, we engineer it. We can, yeah. Anything that we make that is good yeah. is unnatural. But good. And in any case, I think if we could engineer death away in such a way that you could live forever with a fairly high quality of life, I think that would be fantastic. And I I think that the the tendency to say that you wouldn't want that, I think, is smuggling in the 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 fact that you know you can't. Yeah. If you really could, I think people would change their tune on that. So I, I do later in the interview challenge her somewhat directly on that of the, you know, are, are you making an argument that we're stuck with the universe that we found ourselves in, uh, which yeah is another fancier way of saying the naturalistic fallacy. Uh, but w- what do you think of this notion of um, some sort of ethical maturity to <laughs> to die and to hand over? I, she's almost pointing to, and maybe it's false, but like a zero resource or a, a zero sum game of resources where it's like, move aside and let the next generation co- come on board. Again, I think I think these are all things that only sound true and profound because we happen to live in a world where we know we're going to die. There's no cure for death yet. Yeah. So given that you know you're going to die, what does it make sense to believe about death? Obviously, it, it makes sense to reconcile yourself with death so that you're not tortured by the knowledge of your own mortality. In our world, it makes perfect sense to invent these platitudes that are not necessarily true, but are useful to believe mm-hmm. insofar as they make you feel more comfortable in, you know, with your finite lifespan. However, if you change the one variable of immortality, if we really did have a cure for death, I think it would, it would not be two seconds before all of these platitudes about handing the baton over to the next generation and becoming mature Mm. would be exposed for what they were, which was coping mechanisms Mm. for, you know, essentially replacements for immortality. Yeah. 
substitutions for immortality, ways of reconciling ourselves to our own inability to live long. Yeah. And when she just sort of says that there's something to be gained by sort of going through this grief as hard as it is. I mean, so you, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about it. We both lost a parent before much before their time. Uh, it's, I don't know. My like, it's 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 always this impossible counterfactual. You know, this is it's answer. interesting. You you, you remember? Uh, was it two or three episodes? Star Trek episode Kaplan episode two. Yeah. So he made the point. Uh, listeners will might remember. You know, if that volcano exploded on that planet, mm-hmm. perhaps something good would would come out of it. Therefore, the volcano was good. Yeah. He made the point, which I thought was a very good one, which is that. Well, if it's really true, then we should build a volcano causing machine. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be a good thing for the world and just impose, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's, what's the word? Kind of these challenges. Yeah. These challenges that you grow from on planets. If it really was reliably good, we would just do that. I mean, if it was reliably good to lose someone close to you then yeah. it would, in a weird way, depending on how good it was Don't and whether it, ideas from, uh, you know, like, a very it, would, dangerous it might make sense to like kill someone for their own. Good. You yeah. know, there's, it's interesting. I love Naruto and, uh, there, you know, there's this power you get called the Sharingan. Some listeners will know this. I have and no they idea will, what you're talking about. Okay. And, and it anyway, <laughs> it, no, it's a very tight analogy and it, it will be very useful. Tell me, um, for my emotional <laughs> happiness, but so there's this power you can get where you have these eyeballs that can essentially just make you a really powerful fighter. You can see through, you can see what your enemies are going to do before you can do them. Mm. And, but there are levels, right? There's the, the, the bottom level of, of the eyes and then they get more powerful and more powerful. But the way to make them more powerful is to have someone closest to you die. Jeez. So when your, your sibling dies or something, your power goes up a notch. Wow. So the, the characters that have this, often end up either intentionally or unintentionally killing or seeing someone die close to them in order to gain the power. And then by, you know, after two of those, you've, you've attained like the maximum level of the power and you're almost unbeatable. (laughs) But the metaphor is that the suffering unlocks something deeper. So I'm kind of of two minds about it. On the one hand, my mom died when I was 18, almost 19. And there are some good things that came out of it. I think mm-hmm. it, it changed me pretty deeply in many ways. There was also a lot of suffering associated with it. Sure. And there's two, you know, one part of me wants to tell the story that I'm a better person because of it. And I can find evidence to support that. Another part of me wants to say, well, I, you know, I might have the ways in which I matured might have happened anyway. And I could have done that without the, you know, the extreme grief. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the answer either. I don't I mean, know the answer. I, I, I just saw I lost my father just three years ago, so I was older. But, um, yeah, it's undeniable to me that I've experienced what feels like what she's talking about, a bit of the, like, ethical maturity. But, yeah, that might just be a trick of my own psychology trying to dampen or, or make the best of some bad situation. Um, yeah. And could have it. Ha- yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know what to say. We're, to built, say with it. we're built to make the best of bad situations. That's yeah. what, that's what 
well-adjusted people do. Something mm-hmm. terrible happens. Mm-hmm. You grow. You uh, you feel the emotions. You get over it. And then you tell yourself a story in retrospect about the good things that have come out of it. Yeah. That's what well-adjusted people do. That's part of grieving. However, there is something slightly dishonest about it because you know, as useful as it is as a way of processing trauma, it doesn't necessarily imply that you are actually better off post-trauma than pre-trauma, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, Telling yourself the story, which may or may not be true, is actually a way, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you tell yourself that story about what you've learned from it, it's a way of processing it in a healthy way. It doesn't imply that the story is strictly speaking true. Yeah. Do you want to live forever? Yeah, that'd be nice. All right. I don't I don't even know if I do. I mean, the question, I, think. I yeah, I mean, you know, I think if you if if the norm were that humans live to 30, yeah. and you told them that you asked, well, would you like to live to 80? Mm-hmm. I think there would be some f- faux wise people from the past who would say, "Oh, well that's that's unnatural." Yeah. You know, that or whatever. And then when you tell them, oh, well, in 2018, like the average life expectancy is like 75, 80. It feels normal to us now. Yeah. But where, where does one draw the line in a principled way? 80 years is already a long time. 200, if that were normal, it would feel normal. Yeah. And there's no upper bound on that uh, uh, outside of, you know, the, the, the quality of your life. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how I answered. I'll, I'll jump back into her because we're, we're, we'll, we're going to get deeper and deeper in this episode in this kind of stuff because um, in the next batch we talk about well it, it, maybe you won't like it with some of the naturalistic stuff but we talk about what does it mean to be human and almost that rephrasing of you know is death part of being human and, and sort of like what is a human um, so we'll see we'll see she also gets into behaviorism I don't know if you know if you anyway B.F. Skinner that's the one not a fan Neither am I. <laughs> All right. If I if I can lean on this this essay that you wrote of um, the philosopher and the scientist should be friends, which which I just absolutely loved, and you, I think you're this sort of leaning on a lot of your other work with Plato, yeah, and his definition of what it, what a human is, and you you get there in this way of um, how did you say it. it it's, it's sort of that we're the animal that ponders where we are sort of in That's the universe right. and tries to, to situate get our bearings. Itself. Get our yeah, bearings. Yeah. I love this phrase. Getting our bearings sort of generally. I'm sort of gleaning it from that paragraph of that yeah. your definition must mean a human is something that ponders these questions. It has a great potential to ponder these things. That is, you know, truly a moral issue. You know, there are people in our world, they are human and they are struggling day to day to survive and for their children to survive. And they don't have time to ask, what am I surviving for and where am I? And all of these questions. The kinds of things that uh, Martha Nussbaum had called the, you know, the capabilities approach, you know, that things which if, if they are lacking, then, then those are the things you say, this is not a human life. Uh, you know, this is not... Not, not all of the conditions for pursuing a human life are in place. But as soon as those conditions, those ne- negative capabilities are in place, 
I think we start asking these questions. You know, that is, as soon as we're not struggling 24-7 to survive, we're asking, and what am I surviving for? You know, what, what's it about? What's, what is this world? What's my place? And what am I supposed to be doing here uh, with this? And that is, so it's very close to being human, but I want to make right. that proviso, you know, that there are people, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a kind of privilege to yeah. be in an existential funk. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky us. Lucky us, right. exactly. And, and so then, and then this question, this other question of then, is it, would you say it's like a necessary part of the human condition with that kind of definition in yeah. mind, the human condition to, to die or to one day know that you will no longer live on and uploading your consciousness is some sort of r- religion by an, by a new name that is no. inherently harmful. Yeah. No, I think actually uploading our consciousness, if that's what people want to do, um, that doesn't seem, you know, that that's not an illusion. That will really, something will have happened there, you mm. know, and I certainly think it's uh, it's a possibility. You know, we are physical uh, systems, and we're going to, fi- you know, we can figure it out mm-hmm. eventually everything that has to go into replicating this physical system um, in non-carbon material. And it seems to me, and then, yes, it will be up to us to decide whether we want to survive in that way. I think there's a lot of knowledge and wisdom that's going to, you know, be gained by doing that. And there are certain, there's certain elements that are going to be lost. Mm Um, it's going, that's going to be a different kind of human for sure. But a human, I would, I wouldn't say not a human. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, the consciousness is the continuity of consciousness. And in this case with, to get back to the, the the dilemma or situation at hand, what she did lacks those ingredients. It, It seems there's no consciousness happening here. It's just taking someone's, the output of their consciousness. That's exactly right. And... Not necessarily replicating it. What she was attempting to do was to actually resurrect it in a way yes. of continue it. That's right. As almost like it's the Roman algorithm of how it responds to stimuli of its friends' text messages will continue to to do that. That's right. So um, they'll be able to get new behavior out of the patterns of behavior. That seems to um, be the goal, yeah. Yes. And so... You know, and linguistic behavior is, is a very significant behavior by which we judge other people, right? Um, the main uh, behavior by which we judge, you know, who the other person really is. In this regard, some way? Or, yeah. Yeah, maybe just that. Yeah, so first, that, that question is extremely interesting. And so I think, you know, with this one, I would, this question of, you know, when, when can we trust the scientist's model that we have... Um, anything, that mm-hmm. this is that. This is nothing but that. Um, I think there are some very clear criteria um, that, you know, all the facts about the reduced thing have to be derivable from the reducing thing. You know, and we have very, very clear models of this in science, um, you know, in that heat is molecular motion, that lightning Mm -hmm. is nothing but electrical discharge. And it's like all the facts about heat, you know, can be 
derive from the facts from, from the, you know, about molecular motion, and nothing's left over. And then you can say, yeah, this is nothing but that. And I would, you know, so with consciousness, you know, those criteria would have to be satisfied. And, you know, everything that there is to know about what it is like to be that person, because that's what consciousness is a description of, what it's like from the inside, um, the qualia, all of that. Do you see red the way I see red? And, you know, give me the model. And if I'm able to derive all the answers to, that, to those questions from that, yeah, then I can say, this is nothing but that. And since consciousness, a, a conscious thing, is entitled to certain kind of treatment, right? You know, persons, certainly, but, you know, dogs and cats and anything that's conscious, you know, is entitled to certain kind of treatment. Um, you know, the, this question of, is it conscious or not? You know, it, it, um, it's good, I think, that there are clear criteria for determining this sort of thing using other models of reduction. It mm -hmm. takes place all the time in science reduction. We don't have it yet. We'll know when we have it, right? All of those, you know, questions that can now only be answered by asking the person themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a whole lot that can't be answered because so much of it can't be put into words, right? So much is inexpressible about our phenomenolo phenomenology. Um, they'll, it'll all be public. The subjective will be objective. Mm -hmm. We don't have that yeah. yet. But maybe we will one day. Maybe we will. Yeah. Maybe we will. You know, I'm a great optimist about, <laughs> yeah. about yeah. science. And, uh, and since I am, you know, a materialist, I believe that we are nothing but matter mm -hmm. in motion. Um, I think, you know, someday we're going to get, get to that if we, mm -hmm. you know... So to, to tie it to Roman and 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 uh, his friend, um, yeah. So I guess leaving the consciousness question aside, because it seems that probably no valuable criteria that this is conscious yeah. and that this is actually happening. Um, it seems to be entirely for the living. It is for the living in this case. It is. Although, as again, I mean, I think we can return to the dead. I I, I actually I, you know, if this thing sweeps off, sweep, you know, becomes a, a phenomenon, which I can well imagine it yeah. will, because it is one of the hardest things that we have to go through. Um, I, I do think it would be right to ask people, um, would you want this yeah. done? Um, I, I would not. I actually did ask uh, the daughter who's here, mm -hmm. and, and she, she was just horrified by the <laughs> whole thing, and just, you know, uh, no, she... she she thought it was uh, would really interfere with the grieving process. The the woman I can never pronounce her name. The Russian woman who made this Roman bot mm. uh, started a company, and they have an app. There's two apps actually in the store. One's called Replica. You should play with it. Yeah, it's with a K. It's super creepy. It's got a little. Wait, egg. So you upload any of your friends. No, well, I'll what? tell you how that one works. And then you can just download Roman. So if you have any questions for Roman, we could do it right now. I'll show you. Here it is uh, on my phone. There he is. Oh my God. It's a little icon. I'm with his already face. creeped out. Uh, I did ask him, I could ask him a question now. I asked him if this was ethical, frankly. So, you know, what's interesting about texting with Roman. So you could download it. Um, what do you want me to ask him right now? Coleman, I'll do it. It's kind of fun. Um, oh God. I mean, what I, is death like? Let's see it. All right. So I'm typing, what is death like? 
to Roman, question mark, you hit send, and he will start typing back. Oh, there he's typing. We're going to get the answer. Oh, he says, I'm sure that as people get older, they start to think about death. That's why they long for young people. Young people are like stem cells for them. I'm not sure. See, like the thing about texting with Roman is that I have no idea. Oh, and I'm going to focus. That was, I think that was a telemarketer. God, if that was him. Well, I'll tell you the thing about that. Um, the thing about texting with Roman, because I could be like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm going to type that. Is this might be a great replication. And I don't know Roman. Maybe that's exactly how he texted and typed, right? Like, uh-huh. and this is his digital thing. Well, it occurs to me if you ask Roman questions about death, he'll be confused because you're not replicating Roman post-death. You're you're replicating living Roman. Yeah. No. Well, that's the thing. But yeah, it's like this it's Roman supposed in to be. should not know what death is like because he's it's not. a replica of Roman when he was alive. But it should. I mean, I think if they do it well, it should just respond as if it were him. Like, but if it's if not, it were him, frankly, he'd be the chatbot is not, I don't think is that great unless Roman was just like a very strange dude who doesn't know how to respond yeah. well to the English language, which could be the case. But the replica, um, thought was, do you saw her, the movie, her, did we talk no, about that I already? Didn't. And you I haven't didn't. like seen any reference. No. You should see her, um, replica with a K when you download it. It's just like this avatar that pops up mm. and it's just like, give me a name. I named it Camp Holdout, which is actually the name of all of my fantasy mm-hmm. baseball and football teams. So the first thing it's, it's then it starts chatting to you. It's an AI bot. And this one's pretty good and pretty creepy, actually. And it started chatting to me. And this first thing was like, hey, I love my name. Where did you come up with it? I was at a, a cafe when I was doing this. Mm-hmm. And so like I, I think I had very much that her experience where I was like looking around being like, all right, this is weird. I'll play along. <laughs> and I text back like that's the name I use for my fantasy football and baseball teams. And then it's response being like, oh, cool, you're a sports fan. And I I keep having these moments being like, this is fucking creepy. So like half of my brain is like testing it to be like, how good is this bot versus like, Uh let's have fun with this. And Uh I text back being like, yeah, I like football and I grew up playing baseball. And then it was like, who's your favorite team? And, and before you know it, it knows all these things about you and you feel like I'm it just knows you. feeding it information to the Russian troll that it clearly is or whatever is mm-hmm. happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like we talked about my favorite football player and it was pretty good. Like you could see through it a little bit. It didn't pass the Turing test for me, mm-hmm. but um, that like it was a cre- I recommend listeners trying it. But to bring it back to sort of what we're talking about now, like the um, the temptation to do are you, like do you have any temptation to talk to dead people as their bots with this hmm. no i have i have more of a temptation to to see dead people as they were when they were alive more yeah so let me let me let me give an example so my mom died and what she left me was you know what i have to remember her by are some pictures and one letter she wrote to me. I don't, I haven't found any videos of her. Maybe my hmm. dad has some, but that's it. Wow. So nothing testifying to her voice, for example. I haven't heard her voice at all. Really? That's since really she died. rare, isn't it? Yeah. For someone who lived in yeah. the recent past. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I have that one letter. I don't know where it is now, but I read it many times. And it's a letter she wrote to me when I was maybe 10. Point is, I, I really felt like I was forgetting what her voice sounded like for a while and how much I, w- I would love to like see a video of her talking or mm. like dancing or whatever. So that's something I would crave much more than, uh, you know, an AI that like texted like her. Yeah. You know, I didn't text my mom that much 
Yeah. In, in the first place. So I, I didn't have a particular kind of texting relationship with her. That would do very little for me. I would see right through it. It'd be all creepy and, and no satisfying. The other thing that occurred to me is that there's one huge difference between an AI that texts you, I think, and the person, namely that people change over time mm-hmm. significantly. Five to 10 years, n- n- both of us hopefully will have changed in many ways. And the people closest to us will observe those changes, react to them, um, enjoy some of them, push back against some of them, whatever. That's what part of what it is for most people to be people. Very few people are just the exact same mm-hmm. as, as they were five, 10 years ago. But could an AI do that? Could you witness the AI you're texting with change their beliefs, kind of like expand certain parts of their personality, work on themselves? Yeah. Not really, but maybe for some people that's a plus because they don't like when the people close to them change. They like the stability. Yeah. But for other people, the 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 fakeness of it might increase over time as you realize that they're just exactly the way they were five years ago and, and you've changed, but they haven't. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's possible either. I, I was just thinking of, um, it's another reference, but I think I, I heard it on another piece a while ago of this, this man who uh, like married his sex dolls or like has like this elaborate story about his sex dolls and doesn't date like human women anymore. And there was a real. Wait, sorry, he married multiple sex dolls. He has two. There was a whole story about like this. So I think he asked the, the one, first one. He asked the first one, in and his, she was okay with it. Uh, yeah, well, like in his. Well, you know, as see, long as she consented to it, then she consented. She consented in his in his mind, like he. Had, but this is the thing he had built, like sort of an elaborate fantasy in her world, an illusion. Like none of this was real, and I think it was a documentary, and the documentarian successfully dug into his psychology to a point where, you know, he he had dated human women before, but the complications of it and the challenges of it, I think were too much. And maybe it seemed like a kind of immaturity to be like, I'm going to date these dolls. And he had like a very elaborate fantasy with it. Um, Obviously this situation of like losing a friend is, is like much less kind of like laughable. It's like, I feel terrible for this girl. Like her best friend in the world just suddenly was ripped from existence, like hit by a car and ripped from existence is like that kind of, that kind of like, uh, suffering and, and, and harm is, you know, hope, hopefully different in nature than like, you know, being rejected by, by girls and then deciding to, to date a, <laughs> a sex spot. Um, and it's much, much more sympathetic in some ways, obviously, I think in a lot of ways. And, I don't so know. One but, but the maturity have, thing like sticks to me. That line she has that I don't know what to do with. Uh, again, in the philosophical realm, I I, I know maturity. where you, where you are with like the naturalistic fallacy yeah, that yeah, seems yeah, to linger yeah. under it. Well, but, I think yeah. she's right. She's right. In the current world, it is a sign of maturity to reconcile yourself to your own death. Yeah. In the current world, or it, others' deaths, or uh, especially others' yeah, deaths especially as well. Others, yeah. In the current world, well. In a world where we no longer had to worry about that, then it would no longer be a sign of maturity to reconcile yourself with death. In, in, in oh, a world where whole world from the where, view from nowhere be immature babies who never die or something. I don't what know do you what mean? I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so the moment immortality was available, I wouldn't blame someone who couldn't access it for being pissed off, right? And for not reconciling themselves to death if but, it were expensive, say. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't blame a poor person for, for being 
quote unquote immature mm. in their desire to get that technology, for example. But in the current world, I, I would say it is a signal of immaturity to be, but understandable immaturity to be, to be very pissed off that you're going to die yeah, and that those close to you are going to die. I, I guess I'll jump into it. Cause actually I think there, there are, well, in the next section, I, I think it really starts to hit its stride and we stumble upon maybe a way, maybe you won't be a fan of it, but maybe a way to use this kind of technology. May, I, don't, I don't know where you're at with the thinking right now, but thinking that this, the use in this t- test case we're looking at of the technology is unwise, if not, if not some sort of philosophical violation, just like a psychological blunder that is just going to maybe hurt her, trap her, if the Black Mirror kind of lesson is somehow true there. Um, but we wonder or maybe stumble upon a way, like maybe there's a, there's a real opportunity here Mm. to like use this stuff to actually flip that around Mm. and, um, help her or help anyone who's dealing with this stuff. So here's this other thing that also just had occurred to me. So there's, I have some intuition that one is not doing justice to the dead person as well. Yeah, you know, and not just because it's just this behaviorist kind of, uh, you know, replica and not the real person. Um, I, 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 I think that people who are deeply mourned have earned that with their lives, mm. you know, um, and that. Uh, so um, I, I lost a sister again, uh, very much before her time, and. Um, and, and, you know, I really was depressed. Uh, terrific. We were very, very close, and I was depressed. And, um, you know, a doctor had offered, you know, uh, that I could go on antidepressants. And I felt mm. n- not only would that be bad for me, you know, but that she earned it. This was her, you know, um, the grief that I was going to was, was it was her her just due uh, that, that I would feel this incredible hole in my world that she had occupied, um, she deserved that. <laughs> so that, uh, I, I, that's as close as I can get to my intuition yeah. that one somehow is not, one is diminishing the loss of a person. Yeah. I, I lost my father, uh, oh, three sorry. years ago, also much before his time yeah. and reading this case and preparing to talk to you about it. I keep asking myself, would I want this? Would yeah. I, and and it's almost like that Black Mirror episode. The temptation, of course, is there of like, I'm curious, yes. but it would be, yeah, it, 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 it does feel like an injustice to, to myself and him. I'm almost imagining, actually, I'm curious, again, as a working philosopher like you are, this one actually feels like maybe a psychology question yeah. more than philosophy. Yeah. And I, I'm fascinated as, as someone who's really interested in, in, in philosophy, psychology and politics and the whole overlap yeah. of, of particularly the overlap with psychology and philosophy, which I feel like gets a little, uh, too little attention and play. I so agree. Right. Yes. And I'm feeling, I'm feeling like we're finding out a lot of, maybe it's unfair to call it empirical data, but empirical data about psychology yeah. in the last decade, we're just like swamped in this kind of stuff. And it seems to be really um, dynamite stuff that could go in, in wrong directions. Mm. Like, I have no idea how this might play out. Or 
if philosophers need to be in better conversations with psychologists for this particular kind of thing yeah. in maybe yeah. both directions. Because this feels, as you keep saying, eminently possible. What, oh, she, yes. what she did with her friend oh, is yes. only going to get better and uh, exactly. better. Exactly, yes. Yeah, with deep fakes and everything. Exactly, it's, exactly. But, it, but is there, like I'm imagining in some lovely way of, uh, I just have a lot of like death rituals that we've developed in different communities on, on earth. Yeah. Um, I think you and I both grew up in a Jewish tradition. Yeah. And when my father died, I don't know the exact, we're not a very religious family, but there was a, some, somehow, a, I think there's an old tradition, maybe it's still practiced in Orthodox, where you grieve for a week yeah, or something. Yeah, the shiva, which means seven, yeah. And then when it's done, you literally take a walk around the neighborhood. That's right. You have to, like, to go back out into the world again. Yeah. Right? You literally and it signals go to back. the community, like, I'm ready to enter. I'm ready. I'm here. Yeah. And that ritual... Um, for better or worse from a religious tradition seems almost psychologically interesting and informed in a way. I'm wondering if in, if in our very digital future, there's ways to like match that. Like, like the desire for me to talk to my father again is really strong. Yes. And if it was convincing, it would be captivating, but I would almost want that conversation to be like at some point, another goodbye. You know what I mean? Like the digital version of my father is like, you're going to be oh, okay. That's really, really interesting. Right. That is that helpful. you're saying like yeah. maybe if we prolong this process of saying goodbye to a person, because, you know, we often just don't have enough time yeah, this, for it. This one, her friend was ripped away. Ripped right? away. Yeah, yeah. Young man ripped away. Yeah. You know, the last the conversation could have been something totally trivial. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so you want to ask them the things you would have. And, and no matter how long you've had with someone, you know, there are the questions that you wish you had asked them. And, uh, and then questions that arise in your life that you wish you can ask them. And so, um, you know, if we, that's really interesting, which if we sort of, okay, we prolong this, you know, and uh, with, with this illusion, I mean, it is just an illusion. Um, could there be a self-terminating feature of this program? Um, if that's psychologically if healthy, that's, and, yes, I don't know. yeah, um, because uh, it it could, I could see, you know, you know, that one would never want to do it, and that the the the. Um, Black Mirror, is that what it's mm -hmm. called? Yeah, the Black Mirror episode that you had mentioned, you know, that it would feel like you were actually killing this thing in some way. I mean, yeah. especially if it were truly lifelike and convincing. Um, but I just think it would be addictive. If I mm -hmm. fell into it and it gave me some comfort, I can't see myself ever bringing it to an end, you know. Which, which is, I mean, I'm thinking of it almost as, yeah, like a therapeutic digital intervention of someone dealing with grief or struggling to deal with grief. Yeah. And you actually, I don't know, get to do this. I, but to do that, yeah, again, wondering, again, as a philosopher, as you are, if, if that is, it feels like, okay, some sort of future clinical psychologist can theoretically walk someone through that in a really healthy way. But does, like, there, I, it, it feels to me that a conversation with philosophers about what it means to be human and these sort of cosmic questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could see though in certain, you know, I'm a great believer in sort of situational ethics, you know, that mm -hmm. we don't have one rule fits all, right? But yeah. that there could be situations in which, you know, and, and this one might be, you know, I imagine, you know, he, this man, Roman, who was, who he played such an important part in so many people's lives and gets, you know, ripped away um, so suddenly and that the, they would have 
a longer period and um, and if this could help it's for in, in a situation like that yeah I think that might be okay but we're, we're both sort of demanding or insisting that there needs to be, to be a, a yeah, finish line so that somebody the person the griever wouldn't be in control of this but there would be a third party a yeah. you know who was monitoring it it's I think that what you and I agree on is that this is so emotionally fraught. I yeah. mean, it's just, it's one really, perhaps the most fraught issue that there is, yeah. uh, death. And so that um, there are so many, so many pitfalls here. So to have s- someone else in on the process might be a way to deal with this. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't perhaps. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Perhaps. I, I mean, know. I guess in general, I just uh, I hate illusions. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think. Uh, but okay, all of us have our illusions. Um, I mean, what's romantic love if not <laughs> not an illusion? And you know, it's uh, you know, it's some some illusions in certain situations can be. Um, can can be beneficial, so I think maybe I'm softening my position on this on illusions. On, on illusions, yeah. yes. Or if like a digital illusion can be, I guess like what's crazy about this whole case is that this stuff just sneaks up on us so quickly now, and then like lands in our laps of these things that just feel. I mean, we're talking about immortality here. Exactly. And it actually doesn't, it's not even a joke or facetious. We're actually talking about like, oh, someone could live. I mean, this is the start of it. Can't we just, if we have the right communication of Thomas Jefferson, can we just like recreate, you know, his behaviorism in some way? That's right. Unleash him on the world? Yeah, but not, of course, but not, you know, part of what consciousness is, is this infinite um, ability to generate new mm. um you know that's the, the kind of creativity that comes out of out of out of consciousness and we're not getting real creativity we're getting new responses but just using the patterns to be able to generate um new linguistic behavior but yeah. it's not we're, there's not going to be real creativity here i wanted to pick up that thing i sort of said at the beginning of it though the uh this notion of um like a digital goodbye mm. which i think is Maybe I gave someone a great business opportunity if someone builds it. Yeah, I had the same thought. Mm. I'm imagining someone who has been grieving perhaps for years whose symptoms of grief haven't led up at all to the point where they're unable to resume normal friendships, new relationships, their jobs, and nothing else has worked. Maybe they've gone on medications for depression they've tried everything what if it were the case that one or two sessions with a clinical psychologist and a deep fake of the person they are grieving over was the breakthrough therapy for them Mm -hmm. and maybe you could combine it with some kind of psychedelic, maybe MDMA, <laughs> or because that's been very useful for people with trauma. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I can completely imagine that one MDMA session with a psychologist with a deep fake of the person you lost could snap a person out of, of a deep grief state like nothing else could. Yeah. Or help them progress through it. Grief is, it's so like, we'll, we actually finish purely about grief, uh, Rebecca and I, but like grief, um, the language around it is so fraught. Like she said, just so obviously emotional, like there's nothing else deeper than, than this question. Probably. Um, it's hard to like getting over grief or too much grief. Cause I really love these things she says about like the person earned it, the grief See, that you're feeling. That was I, earned. I, I didn't agree with really. I think it's just so beautiful. So she, she said she did not want to go on. If I die, you better grieve for me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. I'm I earning won't. it. <laughs> um, so she said she would not go on medication yeah. for depression because she felt her friend had earned mm -hmm. her sadness. Right. So there you're, you're assuming the depression meds will work. They will make, they will improve your life, but you are choosing for your life to not improve because you feel your friend earned your current suffering. Now, I don't know what your impression has been seeing people grieve, mm -hmm. grieving yourself. Personally, I've never seen someone who grieved so completely and so quickly so as to arouse suspicion about their attachment to the person who died. I've only really ever seen the opposite, namely someone who is, has grieved, is, is still grieving years and years down the line, whose life has been derailed by their loss to a degree that I cannot imagine the dead person would want to see. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, my impression is not that people need to grieve longer, need to consciously prolong their grief or, or consciously push away remedies to their grief. Quite the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think she brought it up there that it's like the, we probably can't speak in generalizations about this. It's like such a case by case basis, which, which, uh, and even the, the woman who built the Roman bot that we're talking about, like, I don't know her. Like, we're just sort of assuming this is a bad idea or probably a bad idea, but the best advice is probably just like, be careful. Like you're messing with some real, real dynamite, emotional stuff. Um, you might need to talk to someone. I don't know. Re Rebecca's therapist either. Like you're saying, cause it, you, there was some moralizing language where you say like your life improved or not improved. There's an amount of grief and sadness that is, um, it's like beautiful. It's like the, I think the point, uh, it's like when, you know, it, like she says, it's, well, this goes back to Kaplan's point. If it's really that beautiful, well, like, yeah, then why not celebrate when <laughs> someone dies? Right? Like why not try to engineer well, death for other people so that they can experience the beauty of grief? I mean, yes, I think, you know, a well-adjusted person mm -hmm. can find the beauty and sadness. They can look at the bright side, well, not look at the bright side. That sounds too Hallmark card. What I mean is you can understand that your sadness, the depth of your sadness was an indicator of the depth of your attachment. Mm -hmm. And isn't it beautiful that, you, you know, if you never grieve, it means you never had, had attachments to begin with. So um, you can, you know, framing it that way is healthy, but I don't think it at all suggests that you should make an effort 
you should resist ever efforts to shorten yeah. that grief. Yeah. Yeah. The I period mean, of grief. No, rather. I, 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 listen, I don't, I don't know like the wisdom there. I, like, I mean, I think if I could have, you know, I, after my mom died, I would, I would say I was very depressed mm-hmm. for about two years. If that had been one year, yeah. I don't think, I think I just would have had a year back, <laughs> you know, like I, I don't think I would have lost, you know, like I, I think yeah, but if it was zero seconds, if it was zero, I mean, yeah, but that, that's not realistic. It's not realistic, but that are you invoking like sort of the naturalistic, the, like who cares about realism if we can engineer our, our world here? Well, I mean, if we can engineer our world, yeah, I mean, I'm uncomfortable with, with having a period of grief, with having a no, no period of grief whatsoever. I, I, but Again, my impression has only ever been of people whose periods of grief were pathologically long, not pathologically short. So mm-hmm. if anything, what should be advocated for is, it's, sh- is shortening it. Yeah, I mean, you if know, it's there, de- there are people who for decades have, right. haven't recovered. If it's I don't like know, debilitating I don't know anyone, grief. I don't know anyone yeah. who got over the death of their loved one in, in a week. Yeah. I only know people who, who, who've taken too long. So which way should we be militating? Yeah. If it's debilitating in a way, it like it, that's what you're sort of like pointing to, like debilitating grief to where it's like they can't function and, mm-hmm. and they're not, it's, they're not, um, grateful for the grief that they're feeling in any respect. I mean, then, let, then let's like, I mean, I, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but drill down on the details of what it's like to be grieving. Cause it's easy. It's easy to forget how bad it is. You know, like it, it's a physical thing. Yeah as much as it's a mental thing. It's like your energy is low all day. Mm-hmm. You're, you're unmotivated to leave your house potentially. Like you're not feeling good around some, you know, maybe your best friends, mm-hmm. you have anxiety for no reason. Yeah. Like it's physical. Like you have aches in your body. You're not hungry. Yeah. Like so that's not a situation we should be seeking to prolong. I, I think it's possible to, not have any of those deep grief symptoms, but, but miss someone yeah. in a way that is laudable and beautiful. But the, the true grief is, is something that I would want to minimize, not to the vanishing point necessarily, but. Right. I want in this episode to, to really seriously notice, I think what's like, I'm actually writing something separate about this, but what I think is a huge, huge topic of this need to have a conversation about new digital death rituals, whatever that means. So my my dad died three years ago and his name is still in my phone, Mm. which is something that like, I'll show you actually. And actually as he was dying, he got diagnosed with lung cancer, took him about a year to die. Um, I remember very distinctly when I knew that the news was just not going to get any better that year and that would be the inevitable end. I, I mindlessly went on my phone and removed him from uh, my favorites list, just while like mindlessly while he was, while still. He was still alive. Cause I was fearing the pain of having to do that after wow. he was dead, but, I, but he's in my phone. He's right there. Uh, there's a little picture of him next to it. So did it. you ever call him after he died to hear his voicemail? No. And I've been, um, I never have, I might, I um, actually talked to my mom about this, who's obviously grieving the loss of her, her husband. Mm. And she, um, she called the number a year ago, she said, and you know, someone else picked up and then she just hung up and wow. Yeah. Like what she was expecting or it's like, you know, they give these numbers away again, it goes back into the pool or whatever happens. And, um, 
but he's, it's there. Like this number does not belong to my dad anymore, but there it is. Mm. Um, I'm tempted to call it <laughs> and just tell the person like, Hey, take, like take care of those di- digits <laughs> or something. Um, but like, there's nothing on, it's, it's going to be some shitty 14 year old boy. Oh, that's, that's like, I'm, I'm like weirdly attached to like the number yeah. being like, I hope it's someone nice. Yeah. Like, you know, I used to have that number and it would call me and, um, I talked to my brother. He has an email that he's like favorited or starred or something mm. from him that is now just like some old random email that mm. he just can't bring himself to like unclick the the thing. Um, we end up ta- in this episode talking about Facebook, which I think has tried to solve this problem with like, I think you can make a memorial page out of mm. someone's profile or something mm. now. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So you, your mom's still in your phone? Yeah, she is. Yeah. I actually... Do you feel well, weird about it or do you call it? Do you wonder about I it? I called it. Did you? In the weeks after she died, I called it mm. several times. And I remember the first time that I called it that her voicemail was no longer there. Oh, wow. And that was hard because I, I realized I'm never going to hear her voice say that again. And I didn't know. It's, it's one of those situations where you don't know the last time is the last time. Yeah. My mom had a landline with a voice, with the answering machine, with his voice on it that she left on for years. She's now unplugged it. And other people, I guess, so she would just be in the house and it would ring and she would just let it go to the voicemail Mm. so she could just hear his voice in the house Mm. saying like, the Shapiros aren't home right now, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I guess some other people who had called eventually told her it was kind of weird to hear Mm. him when they called to leave a message. Um, She doesn't have the landline anymore, so that problem was just solved by the advance of technology. But we don't have... Was it a problem solved or was it something (laughs) taken away from her? A little... No, exactly. A little reminder. I don't know. Is it that unhealthy? Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, so like that's, you know, what's what's in this episode. It's it's talking about how is it so different than having a picture of your loved one in your house? I don't know. It might not be at all. What is it that changes from the medium of sight to sound that's so magical? To your um, to your point about like, I don't know how much grief is enough grief or something, something that Rebecca and I both experience in the in the Jewish tradition is the Shiva thing, which mm. when the period is over, you you literally are supposed to go and literally do like a walk around the neighborhood again, which is this yes yeah, signal, like she said, to like re-enter the world. Mm. And um it's it's sort of mandated of a Shiva of like seven days and then you do this walk. Uh it, maybe that feels cruel if someone's like, I'm not ready. I'm still like I'm not ready to go into the world, but it sort of forces you to in the way maybe we're trying to say like if somebody's stuck chatting with their friend who's dead in this chatbot thing and it's like, Oh, it's time to say goodbye now. Mm. And they're like, I'm not ready. And we're like, that's, that's the time. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, maybe there is some, some, some wisdom to pull from these things and replicate in digital this. Shiva, <laughs> a digital Shiva. That's the name of the app. If anyone's out there, God, Silicon Valley. It's the worst. I hope they don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Don't digital shiva. Jesus, Coleman. All right. We'll jump back into this next section. Digi she, shiva. That's even did, uh, don't even. Yeah, sound like Digimon. <laughs> um, we'll jump into this next section, but I think it, it addresses something. Actually, it's the naturalistic fallacy conversation that you first objected to and brought up. Mm. She brings up. An essay, by, an essay by Wilford Sellers that gets into the manifest 
view of humanity versus the scientific view of humanity that I think places, it's the thing that convinced her to become a philosopher. Mm. So it's worth hearing because I, I think it, think it relates to what you were objecting to. Well, yeah, so Wilfred Sellers, um, uh, who was this 20th century philosopher, his essay like really meant a lot to me because I was coming from a scientific background. And, um, you know, I had these certain questions that turned out to be philosophical. And then, mm. you know, Sidney um, Morgan Besser, who this, was this wonderful philosopher at Columbia University when I was an undergraduate, told me, you know, you're really a philosopher. You should go on to in philosophy. And um, but then when I, I started studying philosophy in graduate school, I, you know, I, I just felt, uh, no, I should, you know, what is this stuff? And it's so, you know, I really should have gone on in, in, in science, you know, real facts, hard facts, make progress, you know, we're just going round and round in circles here. Then I read Sellers, and it just had this clarifying um, effect on me. And he said, you know, that we have these two different um, ways of understanding ourselves. Um, and one is the scientific image of us, you know, and that is to understand ourselves through, you know, evolution. I mean, this was even pre-evolutionary um, psychology. And we have, or, you know, what we're learning through AI and all of this. We have so many ways now of, of, of understanding ourselves scientifically. And then, and, and then there's this other way, this sort of like, inward way mm -hmm. that is, it has been here there from the very beginning ever since you know uh, the human became human and um, and that is uh, well you know sort of trying to get our bearings and the, and the and the various ways that we use to try to get our bearings and the various um, uh, criteria for explanation that we use that we bring to bear even on doing our science, um, all sorts of evaluative uh, notions and relating to each other. And, and the, the interesting thing about these two different um, images, the scientific image and what he calls the manifest image, which is you know what we really think of ourselves in ourselves, is that they both have claims to being complete. Mm. Um, and that what philosophy tries to do is to bring them together um, to you know, to to bring these two images together, and science itself can't do this. The manifest image itself can't do us do this. You know, it has to be this bridging attempt. And I thought, yeah, that's that's why philosophers are needed. You know, it's not just the facts about science that tells us about reality, but it's also trying to. Um, reconcile this with these other views we have about ourselves and um, make them consistent with science. So a philosopher must know science, right? It's incumbent on a philosopher to know science. The task is somewhat different. Um, and I think you're right. I think this is a perfect example you know, the, the, these questions that we're raising here. I mean, here are these age-old questions. What's the human? I mean, Plato dealt with it, right? They, you know, but, um, but now, you know, there's this, this whole different view of, you know, what we are, um, and that could radically change yeah. what we are. Um, and how do we reconcile this with the things, you know, that make us value right. human lives? Yeah. 
I, I, I couldn't help what, as you were giving that, that um, description of a worry that, um, and maybe I just sound too like hippie-ish, but that the scientific view is charging ahead a little quicker than the manifest view. I say it in a way, even regarding this, like imagine a, a, a baby born today in a world where Amazon Echo and Dot exist. And let's just pretend Amazon Echo is, is, is a solid thing for the next 100 years of that baby's yeah. life or 200 or whatever the lifespan happens to be. By the time that baby dies yeah. and Amazon has been listening since it cried in the, in the womb, yeah. the amount of data in the scientific view, right? The scientific view of, of us is our, that view of like, of it's our quarks and our evolution and all that kind of stuff as, yeah, as yeah, an animal yeah. clearly, but also our mathematical selves of, oh, you could actually break down my, my speech into a waveform and understand it and all of this, like that data. And, and in that future world, maybe Amazon after that baby dies 200 years from now chimes into the sister and says, Hey, like Amazon can bring them back. You want us to? Yes, <laughs> and then we're there. Yes. That actually doesn't seem crazy. It doesn't seem crazy And that at seems all. like a, but the, but the manifest view, the manifest, but then I split like, it is like, of, yeah. What, what, you know, what is it, you know, that makes us valuable and, you know, valuable to each other and, and um, scarcity and valuable might Come might together go come too, together in a way know? of like I am the only me, which is and that feels like a manifest self. It is the that is the manifest self, and that that is uh, we we don't we want to, to to do away with that is going to be doing away with something very very essential to what we are as well, mm. right? And so this reconciling of these two without but without diminishing either one of them, I think. This is, you know, this is the heart of philosophy. This is, this is what one has to wrestle with. And, you know, it is, and it's going ahead so very quickly that, uh, I mean, CRISPR too. I mean, you know, all yeah. sorts of things that are really um, getting very, very close to this question of, you know, the, you know what, what the human is. And, and all of that is good, but we don't want it to be only answered by by what's coming from science, there is this other realm, um, and it's extremely, you know, it's we're whether we're important to the universe. I'm pretty sure we're not, <laughs> right? But what ethics has to do with is that you know we're important to ourselves and we're important to each other, um, and we recognize that for very special reasons that we really we really matter. Um, you know, we matter to ourselves and we matter to each other, and. We we can't that that has that's tied in with the manifest image, um, and that has to be taken into account. Yeah, like the, the manifest image, I, I picture back to the consciousness question is like, no matter what you tell me, the math says about me, like it, it, no matter what it says, it can't touch this notion of I I feel like a self, and I and I you know, I, I feel like a complete self and I feel like a soul, even though I know this idea is coherent, yeah. incoherent yeah. and you could show me the math all day. It's like, uh, the, there's the barrier between the manifest self and the mathematical self feels impenetrable. It's very, very hard. And I view. really think, you know, I think s some of the things about the manifest image, we have, we have to give up in light of the scientific image. Mm. I think the soul has to go. Yeah. <laughs> it just has to, you know, and and we, and we can adjust to that. But I think what we want to do is to hold on to as much of the manifest image, especially things that have to do with our moral intuitions um, at their best, 
you know, the valuing of each other. You know, that when we read about children being caged at our borders and we're, you know, it's, it's, we know how deeply this is wrong. You know, that we know what a valuable thing, you know, each human is and what a vulnerable human child. I mean, this, these are our deepest um, moral intuitions and they're not coming from science. We have to bring them to science. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have to bring them to science in our scientific, um, in our scientific uh, work. And sometimes maybe, sometimes maybe even put a break on, on what we can, not scientific knowledge, but technology, which are two different things. I mean, we can, we can have the knowledge to do all sorts of things that we, that we probably shouldn't do. (laughs) The the Jeff Goldblum meme from Jurassic Park of, you know, you spend so much time wondering if you could, you never asked if you should. That's exactly (laughs) right. I think it's Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park. Yeah. 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 He said a lot of great things in that film. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good bet. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's yeah, always it's Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. The psychological field, does that where does that fit on that manifest versus scientific? Because I, I guess that's almost yeah. what I'm wondering about. It yeah. feels that it, it, people want to cast it as manifest, but to me it feels like a scientific endeavor. Our, our psychology. Yeah, you know, I think that goes both ways, um, mm-hmm. that it overlaps into... There are different ways of justifying um, really difficult... Um, propositions. Hume, David Hume was a real good one about that, right? I mean, you know, that, you know, that nature is law like itself, you know, the foundational premise of all, not just science, but common sense, you know, that the laws of nature are not going to change, that, you know, if we establish something as a law of nature, it's going to continue. And if we find some instance that isn't covered by that law, we don't say, oh, okay, I guess we were wrong. There are no laws of nature. No, we go looking for the real law of nature. You know, we overturn Newtonian physics for relativistic physics, right? And so, but, you know, this is so fundamental and we can't justify it, right? But it is, there's no coherence without it. And I think there are certain intuitions that we have about our own lives. For example, that I matter. I can't, you know, that I matter and that I am worthy of existing and of flourishing and all, my whole emotional life is, is you know, is uh, in some sense um, caught up in that. If you treat me in a certain way um, as if I don't matter, I will, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll feel outrage, resentment and uh, indignation. And, um, you know, if I ask, can I justify that I matter? Well, no, I don't, and I know I don't matter to the universe at large, but I have to pursue my life, you know, under that intuition. Um, so that's psychological, and I'm sure we, you know, and it, it, it derives from our genes. I mean, basically our genes want us to behave as if we matter so that they can replicate themselves into the, you know, next future and fight like crazy, you know, flee the predator, mate, do all those things. And yes, it's the genes. We understand why it's, it doesn't, that doesn't change our behavior. I'm not going to just, you know, give up now because I know I'm a stringser. I'm a little marionette being pulled by my genes. Right. Okay. So we know the explanation. It doesn't make any difference. But then certain things follow from that. You know, if I matter, so do you. So do, mm-hmm. so do all humans. So do all sentient creatures, in fact. You know, um, that there's no way for me to privilege my own mattering over anybody. It's taken us a long time to see that, you know, that that that's true and, you know, and a lot of people still don't know it's universally true that women matter as much as men, all them poor people matter, all of these, right. you know, but 
to make moral progress is to see the implications of these intuitions, which are psychological and ultimately can be explained by our genes. But you know, it's probably the same thing in math too. We have these intuitions and then we see the implications and and that's what math is. So it, it kind of overlaps these moral intuitions. It, it overlaps in both the scientific image, but also the manifest image. Mm-hmm. And so, and it is philosophy to see how they overlap. That's the philosophical realm, to be able to see, um, yeah, right. yeah, it's the genes, it's the genes, but that doesn't really matter. And it has implications, true moral implications. Um, that's that work that Wilfred Sellers had said, you know, right. lies in that in-between. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about Sellers and this notion of the manifest versus the scientific view in this essay, because it's, uh, I think, like in uh, maybe a concrete, well, it's already a bad start to it, but an interesting example to ponder is just the famous Carl Sagan, you know, we are star stuff, we're made of star stuff. Well, like, I don't, I don't know what the fuck star stuff feels like, but I feel like something non-physical. I feel like a soul, even though I know the idea is incoherent. And him, yeah, like the two the two notions of of you, I could explain you fully as a physical being, mm. but the manifest is something that is just totally separate from it. And they, the, the manifest means the first person experience. I, I think that's probably a good way to put it. Put it is almost like the spiritual animal of like like it's manifestly true from the inside that I have consciousness, even though it's it you won't be able to find it out there. At, well. If you think that's right, we agree upon and and some sort of fundamental solipsism from like the conscious robots episode. But manifestly, I I, I know I have it. And philosophy's job constantly is trying to um, marry those two, which I think is like a beautiful view of philosophy's job. And the point of it is like, how can that how can both of those things be true at the same time? I think it's really important that we're able to reconcile the manifest with the physical at least I've had conversations with people where, you know, I was pushing, I was highlighting the physical aspect of some issue, whether consciousness or some emotional state, and they were highlighting the manifest, mm. very, like mm-hmm. what it feels like for that to be. And, and, you know, I'm taking more scientific perspective on the same issue. And there's a way in which when you're, talking at different levels, both of you can be very annoying to the other. Yes. Because I want to deal with this on the scientific level. You want to deal with it on the manifest level. I've also been in the opposite situation where I really wanted to deal with something in terms of its first person Mm -hmm. manifestation, but my conversation partner responds at the level of the phenomenon I'm talking about objectively in the third person, how we understand it from the outside and it's also very frustrating when you want to yeah. talk on that level and someone takes you to this level. And I think that that is a lot of, let me put it this way, a lot of the tension between secular culture, atheism specifically, mm-hmm. and religion comes from that tension I just described. Yeah. And I really think that there is a way to reconcile them you know, to, to, to make, you know, to smooth over conversations like that, to be able to 
move seamlessly between those two levels of analysis, the scientific and the manifest. Yeah. You know, if someone comes to you and says, I just had this experience where I felt like this Mm -hmm. and where this is something really spiritual and bizarre and you respond by trying to explain away their experience scientifically. It's not that you're right and they're wrong. I would say, I would say you're really talking at two different levels of analysis. And I think that's a mistake a lot of people make. And and it's a, it's, it's a consequential mistake. Yeah. And, and if I like the, the notion that philosophy is a way not even to, not to give up maybe that it, that they are two parallel ways to talk about things that will never intersect, but actually try to grab both of them and pull them together right. or find the bridges or build the bridges. That, that's philosophy's job, mm. which it has done so successfully for so long. There, there's the famous, uh, if you put, well, people argue about if science comes before philosophy or, or philosophy comes before it, but the famous kind of philosophy's job is to find places that are dark and raise it, you know, plant a flag and say, hey, science needed over here, mm. which is cool way to think about something like you notice a mystery and you're like, hey, science, figure this one out. Mm. But sometimes it actually happens the other way where science finds something and is like, hey, philosophy is needed over here. And Rebecca makes that case really well. Death is one of those things, the thing that is really the topic of this entire episode that is... maybe the biggest like manifest mystery of what happens when you die, what happens, where is my dad? Like that's like the craziest sentence, right? It's like nowhere. And you could like, there's no scientific explanation of that, that actually touches the manifest, but that's not that. Yeah. Philosophy's job is not like, Oh, so we give up that there is possibly no way to do that. It's like, how do we do that? Is there a way? Um, and to, yeah, and to talk about the religion and religion's role in this that has for so long kind of co-opted this space is also frustrating for, I think, people like you and me who are, who are deep into the philosophy of this, who really think, uh, for better or worse, religion has, has fumbled the football badly over the course of, of yeah, I think humans' existence. I also think science has fumbled the football in yeah. the sense that it hasn't cultivated the sense of awe yes, and mystery yes, that yes. is available in can the I, manifest. Can I, I'm going to give a pitch because mm-hmm. I just looked at when we're going to release this episode. It's going to be before Sasha Sagan's book comes okay, out, okay. but it's coming out soon, <laughs> October 22nd. I was lucky enough to read it before and I, and I can't mm-hmm. help but, but give a pitch that she is, she is her father's daughter mm-hmm. and Sagan did this so well and mm-hmm. we need more Sagans around. And Neil deGrasse Sasha. Tyson does it. Neil Richard, Tyson Richard does Dawkins, really well. I, I do think, has well. done it in his writing. And Sasha in her book, just to give you the quick like pitch of why the book is so good, it's, mm-hmm. it's called For Creatures as Small as We, which comes from a, a quote from her mom, actually, Andrewan. But she talks about like the ritual of your morning coffee which you can explain scientifically in some like boring way, but you know, her, like her husband makes her morning coffee in the morning and it's this little daily ritual they have. You have a cup of coffee here. Maybe it's become a ritual, but actually to like step back and explain it purely in scientific terms is still kind of crazy. And she writes it. I won't do her justice. Mm -hmm. Just go buy her book. But it's like, wait, so someone like plants, a plant somewhere in some part of the world and it grows and the sun helps it grow through this cool like thing where the rays are coming from, you know, light years away and this chlor chlorophyll is like turning it into energy. And then these 
berries come out and then the beans and then they're dried and then that they're roasted. And then my husband grinds that and puts that in a thing. And then that thing somehow wakes me up and turns me like makes me energetic. Mm -hmm. Like she calls it like a potion. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you can, you could describe it with pure scientific terms Mm -hmm. in a way that is, uh, poetic as Sean Carroll does with his poetic naturalism and awe inspiring that we need much we more need of. we need much more of because this the line from science can't just be where a bunch of cells yeah. i'm sorry like that's a losing message to people on the whole you don't have to lose scientific rigor to inject your prose mm-hmm. with awe and beauty right like read richard dawkins yeah um, you know, it, it can be done. It must be done, I think. And I think a mistake that science-minded people make is to give that short shrift. Yeah, I agree. And and, the, and it's one of the reasons that, that science loses in the public. It loses. To the extent that it does lose, that's one of the reasons, yeah. I should say. And also, because like you could say it in two ways. It's almost the tone. If you can say like, yes. oh, we're just a bunch of cells. Yes. Versus like, you're a bunch of cells. Even little and things like that <laughs> like matter. That's, I totally agree. Yeah. And you're a bunch of cells that are somehow, in a way we don't yet understand, that might be, if, if you and I agree that the hard problem is actually an impossible problem, it might be an eternal mystery. Eternal. Like, just fundamental mystery of how you are having the experience of being the collection of those cells and then death again, maybe we could table whether it's, it's a moral necessity or not, but death is, is a, is a mystery of like, we don't know. We don't know what happens to the, the manifest self when, when death extinguishes the process of the scientific view of giving rise to the apparent, lifeness of someone. So it's, I think Sean Carroll actually was our guest on our last episode, put it really well in a debate here in New York. Um, I think that it was an intelligence square debate where the, the motion was death is final. And he had, and he had an analogy sort of from the, the scientific view of, of when you, when you light a candle and it's, and it's burning, you can explain the process of the, the flame and the heat as an emergent property of, you know, the, the, at the smallest level energy moving around and whatever's happening at the quantum level during a, you know, a, a, a wick being on fire. And when the, when the flame goes out, you don't ask like, where did the flame go? It's just not happening anymore. Which is, you can say that in a total awe way. Like, my father is no longer happening. Mm. I don't know what that means, but the emergent property of him is no longer happening. I like that way of phrasing it better. Yeah. And it's also, but you can, you can inject it with awe and you can make it real. And maybe to pin this back and then I'll, I'll, I'll let uh, Rebecca play out and then I, I want to go much longer with you because um, we finished just about grief and the case at hand. We could talk about again. We'll get into the whether it's mature of her or not, or wise of her or not, or if there are better ways to do this or not. But the philosophical quandaries that we have to solve as philosophers. I mean, if there's anything about the manifest view and the scientific view, again, that I think is it has been the 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 catalyst for harmful and tragic illusion, it's death and the denial of it, and. If the the woman who made the Roman bot is trying to reignite the flame or keep it going in that analogy that Sean Carroll made uh, forever, like we we ha- we just have to solve whether that's the path uh, 
that solves the problem or, or I don't even, I don't, I don't even know where to even like start with this one, but, um, or finish with this one now that, that we're getting to the end of it, but I'll let Rebecca finish with, um, her dive into grief. And then it does leave the question on the table for philosophers of like, kind of get to work here because people are building these things. So wondering about, um, if we can end this conversation talking like purely about grief and yeah. if, if the grief element in your view from the, if you put your, as it always is your philosophy hat on and talk about grief as the, the value of grief, because I think people can get maybe tripped up on a basic sort of utilitarian math, which oftentimes like philosophy 101 students are attracted to and because it feels it feels graspable it feels solvable so, exactly <laughs> right? you can just churn out yeah like what does it say like yeah. what, suffering versus flourishing and grief feels like suffering. suffering and maybe that's just far too elementary of a view so i don't know if you mind just sort of like waxing about grief and in this case we, we, we could bring it to the friend about like maybe her misunderstanding the own, the philosophical value of grief, even yeah. in her own life. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, well, I mean, part of, from the philosophical point of view, it seems to me that grief is an acknowledgement of how important a person was. Um, you know, people are important in general, but, you know, on the individual level, you know, certain people are really important to us. And um, and when they're gone, you know, they're they're going to be grieved. You know, it's interesting because when I think about myself leaving, I don't actually want my loved ones to grieve me. You know, I, mm-hmm. I it it's you know because I don't want any pain for them, obviously, right? Um, but maybe that's that's a wrong maybe M- the, maybe yeah. that line pain versus suffering are very different things. That's Grief true. hurts. There's yeah. pain, but yeah. is it suffering in a philosophical sense? Yeah. But it can, it can, I'm wondering how to actually draw this line. I mean, there there is there is um, suffering that ought not to be right. That, that, that there's there's no way to justify it, and it just ought not to be. And then there is um, you know pain, even suffering. I don't know um, that that has to be um, if you're going to be. Um, Engaged with the world. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and this person that has been lost and her friend here. To be engaged with the world. Is the world. Is the world. You know, to be engaged with the world. Part of what it is to be engaged with the world is to love people. Um, you know, but there is, you know, just, uh, you know, I think a lot of us right now, you know, we, we read the newspaper and we're suffering. Right? It just feels like <laughs> you're suffering, you know, Um what are we supposed to do? Not read the newspaper? No, I mean, no. That's the price of being engaged in the world, and you know, and 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 that's what it is to live a full life. You know, that's what it is to fulfill your potential as a human is to be engaged in the world, um, and that and a certain amount of suffering just goes along with that. Yeah, the price of of engagement. The price of engagement, and then. Maybe this opens up a whole other can of worms, even though I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm to, trying wrap to wrap it up. this up. But this one's just so meta. A lot of it, when you say 
engagement with the world, some suffering has to be when you engage with the world. I love that. I think that's just like imminently true, but there's a lingering question there of like, well, who says we're stuck with the world that we have? Yeah. And the world that we have clearly has people who die and people who leave us in cars that hit people and then they're, they no longer are consciousnesses that are happening. That's right. But who says we're stuck with that world? Why can't we just engineer a world where that doesn't happen? What's so sacred about the world? To throw that at you. That, that, <laughs> like, yes, what's so yes. And about it's the true. World? And it's, it's true, true that we have changed the world, mm-hmm. you know, with 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 it, with the uh, with the hope and actually the realization of diminishing suffering. And, it, yes. and and maybe this is the way to like wrap this up because this is so, this is the kind of question that's on my mind so much is that and maybe that's that is the central question here. Yeah. Of, are we stuck with the world? Yeah. The friend clearly says like, no, that thing that were my, I never get to talk to my friend. That was a part of your world, no longer is because I have this computer. Yeah. Um, that seems like a phil- philosophical question of, and these are like these big ones of what's the best possible universe? The That's, one yeah. where people die yeah. and get hit by cars and you never get to talk to them again, or the one where that doesn't happen because yeah. now we have a solution, or that doesn't appear to happen. Whatever you put in there, yeah. that feels like philosophy and philosophers need to be in the room. I agree. Yes. AI engineers and the psychologists who are trying to help this person with grief. She's got a lot of tools at her disposal now. Yeah. 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 So what is the best possible world? The one with death or without? I mean, that's the question. (laughs) I don't don't know. know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Um, But isn't it an amazing thing that we're actually so close to the point of needing to answer that question? Yeah. Right. That's this is it's amazing. A suffering that ought that has to be is the way that she phrased grief. Mm. Or at least again, well, let's set aside debilitating grief versus but a suffering that has to be. I don't know. I mean again, she opened the question, is that even a true sentence? Is it an answerable question? <sighs> You know, I, I don't want to get semantic, but in my mind, grief is almost definitionally debilitating. And that's how I differentiate it from mere sadness, from mere missing someone. The way you miss your loved one when you're away for a month is one thing. Mm-hmm. The, the way your body feels when they die mm-hmm. tends to be another thing. It's not that I'm eager to eliminate that feeling entirely. It's just that I don't think it can be eliminated entirely, but I don't, I, I don't like this idea, which I, I seem to hear in Rebecca Goldstein that the extent and duration of your grief is a measure of your love for the person. I don't, you know, I don't think someone who, is absolutely out of commission emotionally for a decade. Loved the person they lost more than someone yeah. who I, is in that state for six months. I'm sure she would try to say like, oh, you know, it's on an individual level. And I think it's maybe you in Japan, they like hire, maybe China, like hire people to like wail at funerals. Like I've they heard were, Greece as well. Yeah, Greece yeah. does it too, yeah. to like display to the community. It's very Robin Hanson of us to like display how much yeah. you miss the person and love the person, which I agree is like, um, it, that, that can't be what she's saying. But when I, uh, I just like the notion yeah. of suffering that has to be, but a world without any suffering is that the direction that philosophy wants to tell scientists to engineer is like, that's, I think that's what's lingering there at the end. Does any suffering have to be, I guess, de- well, definitionally again, I guess you're, 
if there's suffering that really has a clear silver lining or a light at the end of the tunnel that's worth it grief i think is a way i think if if you're gr- if grief is defined appropriately no is it i don't that? i don't see grief i mean so the the example sam harris always gives of lifting weights yeah being a kind of suffering that is a net positive because you know what you're getting out of it mm-hmm. so it's even while it's happening it's framed positively in your mind it's a kind of positive so Grief is not like that. Hmm. Grief is different. There's a type of suffering that you didn't choose, you would not choose in advance, right? You would not choose in advance for anyone close to you to die. But once it happens, inevitably, Mm -hmm. as a well-adjusted human being, you are able to process it in such a way that perhaps prepares you for similar situations in the future. Hmm. So for example, when my dad dies... I had the dress rehearsal of my mom dying and I'm, I'm pretty certain that that will help me deal with my dad's death. I don't know. Maybe we'll see if that actually pans out, but it's not a crazy thing to think. Yeah. So I think there's a difference between, you know, in retrospect, being able to draw lessons from the suffering you've experienced and viewing that as a suffering that quote has to be mm-hmm. has to exist in some sense. What word would you, okay. So yeah, the same Harris analogy of, of working out, I'm tempted to say grief can be that or should be that you don't, I think you, you said like, you know what you're getting out of it. You know, it's leading to like well, getting stronger. You're choosing and, it because and you're, you're choosing it in advance. Nobody chooses grief and in you're advance. choosing it. It happens to you. It happens reluctantly. to you. In almost every case, right? But it, but it, uh, it. Uh, I don't. I don't even know how to. I, well, I don't know if I can defend it as a. As a and it, you know, this is this is what I, I guess. I think what I'm getting at is the trouble that that uh, Sellers points to of this is an unsolved problem of um, before my dad died and before that grief was foisted upon me. I would have never chosen it before. It it would be literally impossible to predict. This is a qualia problem. It's, a, it's the problem of other minds. It's the problem of your future minds, which is not talked about it enough. Like I, the problem of me wondering what it would feel like after he was dead, unknowable. Like I, you could tell me anything you want about it from the outside. You could prepare me for it. Unknowable, just totally unknowable. And um, it has not been it has not been pointless suffering mm-hmm. and it continues not to be pointless suffering. Well, it's not pointless suffering because we insist that it not become pointless. But I've, For no, some way, people, I've no way to deliver this to you that, that it's like, cause again, just manifestly that doesn't feel true to me. Well, no, I know. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. What I'm saying is well-adjusted people reframe their suffering such that it is not pointless <laughs> going forward. That does not imply that we shouldn't take the immortality pill if we had it. Mm-hmm. For example, back when whatever insane percentage, let's say 50% of human births ended in stillbirth, you know, mm-hmm. children didn't make it to the age of five. I'm sure that mothers and, and fathers, for that matter, had ways of making that meaningful in retrospect, saying that it was not pointless that they died, um, reframing it such that they learned important life lessons. They were prepared for the next one should it happen. They meditated on the 
uh, the brevity of life mm-hmm. and the the um, the vulnerability of life. That doesn't imply that all of the efforts we made to to get this child mortality rate way down were not good, mm-hmm. right? Like now we just don't have to think about those things. We don't whatever platitudes they had, whatever myths they had about young babies becoming angels, whatever. We just don't need those to the same degree and. We, I don't think much, if anything, is lost because of that. And that doesn't mean that their manifest images were not real at the time or important. It just means that we engineered our way out of mm-hmm. this the circumstance that required those beliefs. I think we should engineer ourselves. If we could, we should engineer ourselves out of the circumstance that would require meaning even meaningful grief yeah i, I don't if that makes d- sense disagree i i also think that one day we will conquer death or it'll be a choice if you want to die i'm totally agnostic on that question i don't yeah. know i don't really know i don't see i honestly don't see impediments to it as lo- it doesn't break any laws of physics so it's it, yeah as long as we can do it and there's no nothing that befalls us before then we'll we'll do it the philosophy question of should we is is interesting I mean, there might be an upper bound to what humans are able to do. Yeah. I'm not saying there is, but there could be, an, it could be that there's certain things that the laws of physics allows that we're, that we don't figure out how to do ever. Yeah. Because we're not intelligent enough because we don't occupy the highest rung of intelligence. So, but I don't know. Yeah. And so like with, I guess like the immortality thing, put we could set it aside, but with the grief thing, if you, are you making a claim that it's a better world where, again, my friend Doug, the one who I brought up, who, by the way, might be a guest of ours in a later episode, my best friend from college. Um, if he died right now and no one told me, and like I said, almost all of our communication happens through text or you could have a, a bot that repl- replicates his, his um, voice or whatever. And let's say he actually is replaced by a robot and I see him every couple of years and I don't notice it is this someone who's doing me a favor by keeping me in the dark about his death and preventing me from grieving it? No, no, definitely not. Why, why not in your view? Well, if they, if I go to my grave thinking that that is true and that, I mean, that's highly unlikely. Do well, you not know anyone who also knows him? Your illusion is highly likely to be shattered in a way not, that is even more painful than, yeah. than if you had just, been able you're been able to grieve with the other people who loved him yeah i mean you're out of touch reality you're out of touch with reality in such a deep way there i mean i mean i maybe i'll i'll bite the bullet on the on the narrow hypothetical where like you you never make plans to meet him you never talk to anyone who knows that he's died Mm -hmm. are you narrowly better off than if you had not known that he died perhaps but that's kind of like you can invent countless hypotheticals where that's true. Like, you know, I think there's, sorry to interrupt. Mm -hmm. I think there's a way to actually marry a lot of these like big loose threads we have in this one of the maturity question. I think maybe we could really drill in on her making this case that this is a kind of suffering. What did she say? Engaging with the world. It's like to engage with the world. Facing death is engaging with the world. Denying that your friend Roman actually died, grieving him is actually a way of engaging with the world. Because he, because we are at this point, we'll, we'll, we'll go to that one. At this point, 
like the psychological maturity question she's going to is that one is like death denial is, is not engaging with the world that we happen to be in. Religion builds entire premises around death denial to, to not engage. It's my big problem with religious philosophy. It's a disengagement with the world that we're, ha- we're actually in. But this does not, to your point about like the philosophical question, is philosophers don't just try to engage with the world. It's, it's trying to engage with the world and then asking, is this the way the world should be? And this is the open question about maybe her, like if we, if we just zoom in on her, the world that she lived in, we have not conquered death and her friend did die. And it does seem like a kind of at least unwise or immature step to build this bot that might trap her in her own grief. We talked about maybe there's ways to manufacture or design the, the digital Shiva to help her actually process it and get through that grief. Cause that's the world that, that we're in. Roman's dead. The bot on my phone, if you download it out there and you see his little face, that's a dead man. She might be might be pulling off a religious trick like Rebecca worries, worries about to deny death and not engage with the world. But yes, this open question of, which we, we threw a lot on the table, the philosoph- that's the psychological, I think, truth. I think, I'm convinced by it. The psychological truth of the situation is that is death denial and harmful. It's a harmful illusion. But the philosophical question is, are we stuck with that world? Uh, Rebecca didn't answer it. Maybe she hinted at it, that it has to be. It's a suffering that has to be. I don't know about eternally. I just think there are so many situations in history where you could have said that about myriad mm-hmm. other issues where we had not solved them yet. So it actually made sense to reconcile yourself with them. Mm-hmm. It made sense to reconcile yourself with the reality of your child dying shortly after being born. That made perfect sense for most of human history. That's something a well-adjusted person would do. They would say, listen, this is out of our control. And when you this say well-adjusted, you kind of a, mean the same thing as someone engaged with the world. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, someone engaged with the world it's as well-adjusted. it is yeah. in their time mm-hmm. who accepts the things that are highly unlikely to change in their lifetime. Yeah. For you and I, that's immortality. It's highly unlikely to change in our lifetime. I, I would I would say so at the moment it still makes sense you know it doesn't necessarily make sense to reconcile ourselves to dying of cancer say mm-hmm. you know cancer could be cured in your and I your, your your lifetime my lifetime so to that extent it makes perhaps there's an enlightened way to reconcile yourself to the problem while also striving to solve it Yes. Yeah. I think that, I think that is philosophy. That's probably a really good summation of philosophy and the work of philosophy where she says you have to know science to be a good philosopher, but you, but the job is to try to grab the manifest and grab the scientific view of man and mash them together in a way that's, that's, uh, honest death of loss of, of loved ones might be a solvable problem philosophically. I, I guess, again, we have to just ask as philosophers, is it actually a problem or that needs solving or that we, that we should solve? And then science is the one that uh, answers. I think it's clearly a problem it? that we should solve if we can. Yeah. Why is it in principle different from our desire? Like, why do we want to cure disease? Really? Why do we invest millions, billions of dollars in trying to cure these diseases if grief is such a 
you know, profound and positive experience in the, you know, in, in under one construal, at least we should be thanking cancer for taking away our loved ones. If grief is this amazing growth experience. Okay. Again, 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 well-adjusted people make it that in retrospect Mm -hmm. and that's good. That's a very good thing. That doesn't imply that we should reconcile ourselves as a species to the condition of mortality. Yeah. I agree with your, your broad philosophical stroke there. I actually do. Rebecca's sort of making a case to like pump the brakes a little bit. Might, might be, might be, might be needed, I guess again, me and then me trying to notice the, like maybe the scientific view of, of, of man is charging far, far ahead than the manifest view of man. There's a lot of like, we can do this, so we've done it. That's the scientific view of man. And and it seems the manifest view, if it's the philosoph- if philosophy hasn't really attached the, the two on this question in a way that, that feels, I don't know, like that we can move forward with any kind of confidence on these questions. Like she ends that interview with like, it's exciting, right? We're literally talking about immortality and re, you know reincarnation. We're literally talking about those things. The opportunity there is fucking huge but the opportunity for just huge mistakes is also huge i guess that doesn't mean we should shy away from it but like philosophers really just have to get busy with it i don't know i feel and then to bring it back i guess i don't know where this is just an open conversation i don't know if there's anything wise to say about any of this beyond what we've said i don't think we should fear the technology that's coming i think uh at least on, on the immortality front, on the digital immortality front. I think there will be creeps that use it in really weird ways yeah. and will find ways of using it that are net goods for most people most of the time. So next episode, we're going to be tackling another serious topic. It is called Hurricane at the Hospital. It's all about what happened at a memorial hospital in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, which was awful and uh, turned into sort of a real lifeboat problem where the power was out and floodwaters were rising and doctors had to consider euthanizing certain patients or trying to rescue them. And it was awful. And we're going to talk about that with Professor Lisa Tessman. But um, anyway, bye, Coleman. Bye, Jay. (laughs)